From NPR and WBUR Boston, I'm Jane Clayson, and this is On Point. President Trump continues to rebuke his own scientists on the coronavirus. He talked about physical distancing measures at a campaign rally in Wisconsin last night. You know, you're not allowed to have a political rally for more than 10 people. You're not allowed to go to church. You're not allowed to meet. You're not allowed to talk to anybody. You have to stay in a prison. Your home has become your prison. Wildfires burn the West Coast. Here's Lauren Christian returning to the site of his former home in Marion County, Oregon. I've been here 25 years and I built the porches, built the garages, and this was my bedroom. And yeah, and when I looked over, all that was on fire. Hurricane Sally slammed into the Gulf Coast this week, bringing with it massive flooding. Here's the Weather Channel's Chris Bruin in Pensacola, Florida, Wednesday morning. Every street downtown Pensacola is just submerged, and the waves keep coming. It looks like the wind's letting up a little bit, but goodness, this is just, I have never seen anything like this. We have a panel of top journalists today to look at the week in the news. First, from Falls Church, Virginia, Lisa Desjardins, correspondent for PBS NewsHour. Lisa, great to have you back. Good to be here. From Washington, Anita Kumar, White House correspondent and associate editor at Politico. Anita, welcome to On Point. Nice to have you. Thanks for having me back. And with us from Los Angeles, California, Sewell Chen, editorial page editor for the Los Angeles Times. Sewell, welcome. Hello, Jane. So let's begin with the natural disasters across the United States this week. Hurricane Sally on the Gulf Coast and the historic wildfires raging in the West. Sewell, uh, let's talk about those fires. It's been a devastating and deadly week in so many communities in California and Oregon. Where do firefighting efforts stand right now? Well, they're concentrated in pockets across the West Coast. I mean, there's still quite a few fires going on here in Southern California. The air is finally starting to get better. I can see blue outside my window and feel a bit of a breeze. And uh, the the kind of toxic and acrid uh, smell has kind of gone away after really about a week. Well, it is extraordinary, and it has been this week, to see the satellite pictures of that smoke plume from these fires that stretches not just to the East Coast, but all the way to Europe. Uh, Let me play this clip. President Trump uh, met with California Governor Gavin Newsom this week in California, along with a group of scientists, which led to an extraordinary encounter. Here is Gavin Newsom's Secretary for Natural Resources, Wade Crowfoot, pushing the president to accept climate change as it relates to these wildfires. Here's the exchange. That science is going to be key because if we if we ignore that science and sort of put our head in the sand and think it's all about vegetation management, we're not going to succeed together protecting Californians. Okay, it'll start getting cooler. I wish you just watch. I wish science agreed with you. (laughs) Well, I don't think science knows, actually. Sewell Chan, to add context here, President Trump blames a a poor forest management for these fires, despite the fact that most of them, in California at least, are on federal land, Sewell. Yeah, Governor Newsom has had to tread carefully here. On the one hand, you know, federal, the uh, federal, 60% of land in California is owned by the federal government. So even if forest management were um, the main issue, you know, it would point to uh, federal responsibility as well. But I think, you know, Newsom had to tread a careful line because on the one hand, California needs emergency aid from the federal government to attack these fires. But on the other hand, there is a fundamental disagreement, as Newsom told Trump. Um, when it comes to uh, the fundamental reality of climate change, uh, which Trump has not accepted. 
In response to those comments, Lisa Desjardins, Joe Biden called Trump a, a climate arsonist whose denial of science is responsible for the widespread destruction. What did you hear in the president's exchanges this week? Right. I mean, I think this is where this is part of the key contrast here between these two men who would like to be president for the next four years. Biden is someone who talks about details. He is deeply briefed. He had a uh, almost two hour briefing on vaccines and the coronavirus um, also this week. Trump is someone who operates on instincts. Uh, he has confidence in his own abilities, whatever anyone else thinks of his abilities. That is where he's coming from. And he does not believe that climate change either is real or is something that the government needs to worry about. I will say, though, you know, it's our job to, you know, kind of to talk about facts and to look at facts. And I noticed a report from the Congressional Resource uh, Research Office uh, Service that came out uh, early September. And they noted that every year since 2000, um, the amount of acreage of wildfires that have burned in this country is double what it was a decade ago. So it's clear that something is changing. And it's also clear that science is telling us that extreme weather events are directly connected to climate change. But the president is, is overtly denying it. The man who wants to um, succeed him, Joe Biden, is saying otherwise. Well, and then there was Hurricane Sally uh, blasting into the southeastern part of the U.S. this week with massive floodwaters and, and powerful winds along the coast from the Florida panhandle to Alabama. In Pensacola, Florida, 30 plus inches of rain. That's four months worth of rain in four hours with one of the highest storm surges on record. Anita Kumar, uh, Hurricane Sally is one of 20 named storms, 20 so far this season. I mean, this is unprecedented. It's a record-setting season for hurricanes. 2020 won't won't quit, right. will it? Right. Um, yes. I mean, it, it did come ashore as a Category 2 hurricane, and there, you know, these pictures that we're seeing are just devastating of this enormous amount of water, as you've mentioned, hundreds of thousands of people that are out of, you know, don't have electricity, uh, you know, homes, streets, the whole thing. Um, and, you know, as you mentioned, there's so many hurricanes, the wildfires, other disasters. Obviously, we're going through the pandemic right now. So, uh, you know, the disaster officials are very, very much stretched uh, thin as as this keeps going on. And they, there may be more still to come. Uh, indeed. Uh, let me move now to um, a very public scorning this week for the director uh, of the Centers for Disease Control, President Trump slapping down Dr. Robert Redfield after Redfield testified that a vaccine for the coronavirus will not be available until the middle of next year. Later that same day, President Trump said Director Redfield was wrong. No, I, I think he made a mistake when he said that. It's just incorrect information. And I called him and he didn't tell me that. And I think he got the message maybe confused. Maybe it was stated incorrectly. No, we're ready to go immediately as the vaccine is announced. And it could be announced in October, could be announced a little bit after. Lisa, uh, Dr. Redfield, mm -hmm. quote, made a mistake. He misunderstood the question. He was confused. Uh, and the president, they're continuing to insist that a vaccine will be available in a matter of weeks. It was an extraordinary rebuke, Lisa. What did you hear? What was your reaction? It's extraordinary on both ends. You know, I think what I'm waiting for is to see if Redfield himself says anything publicly. We know the president's version um, that Redfield told him he made a mistake. But Redfield's words were very clear to Congress and to the American people, saying that he believes masks are our best defense and that he does not believe 
um, not only that a, a vaccine will be available this year, but not until the middle of next year, maybe even the last, the third quarter of next year. And he also said that they may only have sort of a 70% ability to impart immunity. So these are kind of very factual items that he said. The, the president, um, we don't know what his conversation was with Redfield, but we haven't heard um, a public disowning of those comments from the man who is the director of the CDC. And what do you make of that, Anita? Well, I mean, this is the this is the situation with President Trump and not just Dr. Redfield, but Dr. Burks, Dr. Fauci, you know, for these last six months, they all have this very tough balancing act. Uh, they want to show what science shows them, what the, what they know as doctors. Um, but if they stray too far to something, a message that President Trump doesn't like, he will surely tell them or he will be public about it. So, you know, at certain points over these last few months, we've seen all three of these very public doctors uh, have run-ins with the president. And we kind of wonder, you know, is does that mean uh, they're going to be leaving? Um, you know, we've seen them sidelined. So there's a, you know, a back and forth there. I will say that just having, you know, covering the president and his reelection, all focus from him is on this vaccine. It's very important for him to try to get this message out, as he says over and over again, that there will be a vaccine before the election. Now, we don't know if that's the case. We know that health experts disagree with that, as we've just heard. Uh, and we don't know that Americans are going to even want to get this vaccine right away. Uh, they may not be confident that it's it's ready to go, they may think what Joe Biden thinks, which is it's too soon and it hasn't been through enough, um, you know, rigorous tests. So, you know, but this will continue to be the president's focus for the next couple months. Well, and even if some sort of vaccine is ready uh, by October, as the president insists, it has to be manufactured, Sewell. I mean, it, it has to be distributed, which is an entirely different challenge. Yeah, it's the the prospect of kind of widespread distribution of an effective, readily available vaccine by October increasingly seems so remote. And I, I wonder why we're still in a way talking about this. Um, you know, almost all the timelines that experts have offered, you know, from Bill Gates to Dr. Redfield, um, talk about this being months away. And I really don't think that's easy to argue away. I, I think the, the, the idea that even if vaccine distribution were to be tested, approved, manufactured, made widely available, that it could start by October, well, that's about two weeks from now. Um, it's, it seems like a lot of wishful thinking. And Lisa Desjardins, as, as you mentioned, the CDC director, Dr. Redfield, during his Senate testimony, uh, you know, under oath this week, said that if all Americans wore a mask, the coronavirus could be contained in as little as six weeks, Lisa. Right. I mean, that, that is an, an amazing statement because you think of how far into this crisis we are, how long ago uh, there could have been um, very clear guidance for the entire American population about mask wearing. And instead, um, the president, while he is wearing masks, is still holding rallies at which his supporters are not required to wear masks. We don't know yet um, if his rally over the weekend in Nevada um, will lead to any new coronavirus um, cases or not. I want to mention separately something conservatives raised is that uh, the president did have a rally in New Hampshire a couple of weeks ago, um, and the state said there were no new cases there. So, uh, you know, that was an outdoor rally. The Nevada was an indoor rally. All of this mattered, but this is not something the president is talking about directly. 
We are talking about the week in the news, the week's top stories with Lisa Desjardins, correspondent for the PBS NewsHour, Sewell Chen, editorial page editor for the Los Angeles Times, and Anita Kumar, White House correspondent and associate editor at Politico. Up next, the stalemate in Congress. Attorney General Bill Barr likens coronavirus stay-at-home orders to slavery and the 2020 election. I'm Jane Clayson. This is On Point. We'll be right back. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash on point. That's Indeed.com slash on point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Jane Clayson. We're doing a deep dive into the week's top stories here, and I'm speaking with Anita Kumar, White House correspondent and associate editor at Politico, Sewell Chen, editorial page editor for the Los Angeles Times, and Lisa Desjardins, correspondent for PBS NewsHour. Let's go to Capitol Hill now, uh, where House Speaker Nancy Pelosi announced this week that the House will remain in session until a new coronavirus relief bill is is reached. Uh, within a few hours, Majority Leader uh, Steny Hoyer clarified that a bit. But, um, Anita, the bottom line here is Pelosi and the Democrats uh, are not willing to budge, and they haven't for months on their demands for a wide-ranging coronavirus relief bill with a price tag of about $2 trillion. Give us a state of play on Capitol Hill right now. Well, it doesn't look good. (laughs) Uh, You know, they're entering this weekend with not much going on. Uh, You know, they're kind of where they were before in terms of they can't agree what should be in this bill. But more importantly, I think they can't agree on how much this bill should cost. You know, Republicans in the Senate really want to limit it. They want it to be a smaller bill. They had proposed, you know, a few hundred thousand uh, billion dollars. you know, and and where the Democrats in the House had originally proposed three trillion. So I think now they're probably a, a trillion uh, disagreeing about at least a trillion. So a trillion apart. That's a lot of money. Um, you know, I I think there was some hope a little bit this week when a couple things happened. One of those things is the president kind of talked about it again. He was asked about it and said, you know, I think the Republicans uh, in the Senate should agree to a little bit more. And so there was some hope that maybe there would be something that they could meet in the middle on. But you mentioned the House Speaker, and she's she's even more adamant than, than she was before, saying that, uh, you know, the costs have only gone up. She wants even more than she was getting before because, uh, you know, governments and, and various people around the country need that. So it does not seem like they're getting anywhere. I will say, as my 
colleagues uh, reported on Capitol Hill this week, she is facing a lot of pressure from within her caucus to do something. So there, there is a little bit there. Uh, the more members are out in their districts campaigning for re-election, she might be hearing from them that that something needs to be done. Well, uh, an increasing number of these rank-and-file Democrats who are facing these tough re-election uh, races are beginning to, to question Pelosi's response, Lisa, you know, holding out on this $2 trillion mega bill uh, as millions of Americans are out of work. They're hearing about it in their districts. Right. And I think it's interesting to note that um, Senate Republicans also um, are very interested in trying to have something happen because they are now looking directly in the face of losing their majority with the way the landscape is for them. Uh, So they are under a lot of pressure, too. And what you saw happen this week was that bipartisan group, the 25 Democrats and 25 Republicans um, called the Problem Solvers Caucus, which includes several vulnerable Democrats, those Democrats that are worried that Anita's talking about, um, they came up with their own proposal, which really is sort of this middle ground that I think most people on the Hill have thought uh, would be what what a compromise would roughly look like. Um, The Speaker's office and House chairman, the House chairman in particular, Democrats, um, rejected it, said it, it just falls short. Their big problems, if you talk to them, sources about what their real problems are, not enough money for eviction assistance, not enough money for food aid. But, you know, this potential compromise that the problem solvers um, suggested has $500 billion for state and local governments versus the zero that Senate Republicans were offering. So it came a long way toward what Pelosi was asking for. Um, However, she isn't backing down, as Anita Kumar said. The question is, Um, how they will address this pressure, if they will address it. And I believe that Pelosi may be having a conversation with Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin um, very soon, not about this, but about government funding overall, which is set to run out in under two weeks. Now, the question is, does that open the door for them to also talk about um, COVID relief? Pelosi has made it clear she does not want to make a deal unless it comes very far Um, toward her side of the balance sheet. So here are the co-chairs of the uh, Problem Solvers Caucus, as you mentioned, Lisa. Democratic Representative Josh Gottheimer of New Jersey and Republican Tom Reed of New York speaking to PBS NewsHour on Wednesday. Here is Representative Gottheimer. We can meet our priorities. Let's stop fighting over the top line number, which everyone keeps talking about. And we're really hoping our leadership and, on, and the White House and that everyone can come to the table and, and, and use the, our uh, framework as a, as a starting point, but just to get something done so we can help people because we can't go home, really. Frankly, it's unconscionable to go home without helping folks. Sewell Chan, jump in here. Uh, Republicans have their so-called skinny stimulus. Democrats have their $2 trillion uh, bill. And as Anita said, we're we're a trillion dollars apart. Uh, Where do you see room for compromise? Well, I think it's um, I think it's hard to compromise when, you you know, the resistance against more spending comes seemingly from an arbitrary place. I mean, the initial two packages of virus related stimulus funding were so large but but more importantly, the desperation recently of 
uh, really of state and local governments, where you see at the municipal level, so many employees risk being laid off, um, so many services being cut, not only the evictions rising, but um, uh, also the lack of funding for um, states to administer the elections. And really, the macroeconomists seem to be saying that now is the time to kind of prime the pump. I also think that some of the dialogue around borrowing is a little bit exaggerated. Essentially, the government is borrowing by from itself right now because the, the, uh, the Fed is um, generating so many U.S. bonds, you know, basically exp- expanding the, the supply of of capital in the economy by uh, by buying government bonds, and and so yes, the debt is rising, but a lot of it's debt that the U.S. owes to itself. And aside from this plan, as Lisa mentioned, Congress still needs a stopgap spending bill to fund the government uh, by September 30th. So stay tuned. Uh, Let's move now to the 2020 election. Uh, President Trump held another rally this week inside a warehouse in Nevada uh, with thousands of people uh, defying state regulations. Joe Biden held a couple events as well. Um, Lisa, turn to you on this first. Talk about the differences about how these men are approaching campaigning in the final weeks of this presidential run. 46 days to go, I think it is. That's right. We're getting there. Um, it's remarkable. I'm, I'm really interested to hear Anita's experience because I was at uh, the Biden speech in Wilmington two days ago. And, you know, they are diligent about temperature checks, about distancing. There are giant white circles around each reporter. Um, and, you know, he is not really engaging with the public very often. He is not holding rallies. What he is doing that is similar to Trump is he is blasting his opponent. You know, this is a real kind of diametric opposition where you see these two candidates just engaging each time about who is more dangerous for this country. Biden made his case very clearly about the virus, saying he believes uh, the president cannot be trusted on that and that this country is obviously um, in a very serious crisis with, as Biden pointed out, a thousand deaths a day here versus zero deaths a day in Canada. Um, So their kind of way of going after each other is is not dissimilar. That's what this campaign is about. But how they're doing it um, and their campaign mechanisms are very different. That's why this debate will be so interesting. That's sort of one of the few sort of even platforms. They'll both be on the same stage with the same um, exact situation before them. Here is Joe Biden at a drive-in town hall in Scranton, Pennsylvania last night uh, talking about President Trump's pandemic response. This is all about one thing, the stock market. He doesn't want to see anything happen. It's all about his reelection. It should be about the American people, and they're in trouble. And if we don't do it, and by the way, his own CDC director contradicted him recently. He said, if in fact you just wore this mask, nothing else but this mask, you would save between now and January another 100,000 lives. And so we have to be honest with the American people. They're tough. Anita Kumar, uh, what strikes you on the campaign trail right now and what strikes you about Joe Biden's message? Well, Joe Biden really just wants to keep the message mostly on the coronavirus. That that is what he thinks uh, is important to to highlight um, just how the president has responded. There's been a lot of books and interviews and various things coming out, you know, recently that he's really latched onto, you know, just showing how that response was not good, that he was not prepared, that sort of thing. And, you know, what you'll see is with President Trump, you know, he's been having these 
not quite every day, but several several times a week rallies, sometimes a couple rallies in a, in a day. Uh, you know, they had originally said these rallies would be smaller, a couple hundred people. They've, they've ballooned to several hundred, maybe even over a thousand. His message is the message he has always had, which is this long rambling message that can go, you know, maybe one to two hours where he does talk about the coronavirus, but he also talks about law and order. He talks about uh, the Supreme Court. He talks about judges. He talks about so many different things because he wants to keep the message on a variety of things. He doesn't want it to be all about the coronavirus. That is uh, the thing that he sort of wants to avoid if he can do so, uh, if he can do that. So they really have these two two very different messages. And of course, the reality is many Americans are still in their homes, not at work, not going out. And so that is one of the biggest issues that, that Americans still face. Uh, this week, a former uh, Homeland Security, counterterrorism and coronavirus advisor to Vice President Pence, Olivia Troy, um, w- she was featured in an ad in which she condemned the president's coronavirus response. Here she is. We knew it wasn't a matter of if COVID would become a big pandemic here in the United States. It was a matter of one. But the president didn't want to hear that because his biggest concern was that we were in election year. And how is this going to affect what he considered to be his record of success? It was shocking to see the president saying that the virus was a hoax, saying that everything's okay when we know that it's not. The truth is he doesn't actually care about anyone else but himself. Sewell Chan, that's the message uh, that that we keep hearing from the Democrats, from Joe Biden, that that drumbeat, uh, the coronavirus response was a disaster and laying it at the feet of Donald Trump. Well, I thought the Olivia Troy statement was pretty damning. Um, uh, The editorial page that I represent endorsed Joe Biden uh, about a week and a half ago. Uh, We decided that we did not wish to wait until uh, the debates because it was next to impossible that anything we'd learn in the debates would change what we already know. Uh, we tried to emphasize Biden's positives, but for sure, we, among many other things, looked at the rejection of science, uh, truth, and uh, and scientific evidence and reason itself as one of the reasons for uh, that our readers should uh, should vote against Trump. Well, uh, this week also, President Trump escalated uh, his attacks, uh, his unfounded attacks on voting by mail. On Twitter, he wrote, the November 3rd election result may never be accurately determined, which is what some want. Stop ballot madness. Anita Kumar, you wrote about this in Politico, that President Trump has spent about $20 million of his political war chest to try to stop mail-in voting and has yet to prevent a single state from sending out ballots. But the message remains, Anita. Yeah, I mean, we're hearing this every single day from the president in speeches and on Twitter, as you said. Um, The reality is there are 10 states and the District of Columbia that have these ballots that he really uh, does not like. And that is ballots that are going out unsolicited. So every voter, every registered or active voter would get a ballot, whether they want one or not, in the mail. Um, None of those states have stopped doing that. Uh, He's only challenging some of those states, uh, Nevada and New Jersey, uh, but he's not challenging all of them. Vermont, I know, is not a swing state, but it's one of the states that uh, does have these ballots going out, and he hasn't challenged that. The reality is in is that states are starting now to send out ballots. New Jersey has some counties that are sending them out. Uh, Nevada is going to start next week. So he hasn't prevented that from happening, but he continues to campaign on this. He continues to fundraise on this. And it will be a message for him for the next couple months, whether he's successful or not. 
I want to get to the shocking comments uh, this week now uh, from Attorney General Bill Barr, who compared the coronavirus stay-at-home orders to slavery. Here he is speaking at Hillsdale College Wednesday about national policies aimed at curbing the coronavirus pandemic. Putting a national lockdown, stay-at-home orders is like house arrest. It's, the, it's, the, it's, you know, other than slavery, which was a different kind of restraint, this is the greatest intrusion on civil liberties in American history. Lisa Desjardins. Yeah, I mean, that was quite a statement for on a number of levels. I think I think first you have to address the comparison that he's made there. Um, you know, he's saying other than slavery and he's trying to sort of almost at the same time walk back, noting that that's a completely different topic than a national lockdown in a pandemic. Um, but obviously, many people are pointing out he is not thought of Japanese internment, for example, during World War Two, not thought about. Um, what was state-enforced and federally-enforced segregation, just to name a few examples about civil liberties problems that this country has had. Um, at the same time, this does show something about what Barr and President Trump um, are thinking about in their campaign. Uh, there is a section of the Republican Party that has always been very focused on civil liberties, um, the libertarian sections running their own candidate as well for president as they often do. But I think this gives us insight into why, for example, there's so much pushback from the president about masks. This is the part of the Republican Party that they are thinking about and that they are focusing on. Um, at the same time, Barr's remarks also went into how he sees his power. Um, he has definitely taken some steps in some prosecutions um, limiting them, for example, changing them, uh, that people accuse him of being political, that he's doing this to help President Trump. He pushed back and said, he's the attorney general. He has that power. It's can't, uh, essentially almost paraphrasing Richard Nixon after his presidency and saying it, it's not illegal if the attorney general is doing it. Right, Sewell Chen. It was extraordinary to hear uh, Bill Barr say that as the top law enforcement officer in this country, he has the right to intervene as the final arbiter in all cases before the Justice Department. I mean, it was in another extraordinary pushback to career Justice Department lawyers who've really questioned uh, his involvement in everything from antitrust settlements to criminal prosecutions to civil litigation. Sewell, what did you hear in that? Well, I hear that the perception that Barr was this kind of establishment figure who could chair, who could successfully steer the Justice Department, particularly after, given that he had done so under the first President Bush, I think that image has given way to that of a very, very ideological um, executive power obsessed attorney general who seems to be more the president's lawyer than the American people's. And beyond the comparison to slavery, Anita Kumar, this week, uh, Bill Barr also said that the Black Lives Matter movement wants to use African-Americans killed at the hands of police as props to advance their political agenda. I'm just curious, before we go to break, your thoughts on this. Yeah, I mean, my thoughts based on that and just the entire speech surprised me just for the reason Lisa said before, which is he... He's getting criticized and has been criticized for being too close to President Trump or looking like he's just uh, carrying the president's water. And in this speech, this entire speech felt like he didn't care about that criticism. And he came right out and said it. Um, you know, all the things that the president has said about Black Lives Matter, or the pandemic, he was out there saying he agreed with him. We are reviewing the week's top stories with Anita Kumar, Sewell Chan, and Lisa Desjardins. Coming up, a look at the historic deal in the Middle East, peace deal, and much more. I'm Jane Clayson. This is On Point. We'll be right back.
did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm Jane Clayson. We're rounding out the week's top news stories with a fantastic uh, panel of journalists. Anita Kumar, White House correspondent and associate editor at Politico. Sewell Chan, editorial page editor for the Los Angeles Times. And Lisa Desjardins, correspondent for PBS NewsHour. Well, the Trump administration has brokered an historic agreement in the Middle East. And this week, President Trump hosted a signing ceremony at the White House. The Abraham Accords will normalize relations between Israel and two Arab states, the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain. Uh, Anita Kumar, what is the significance of this peace deal? Well, the president has talked a lot about uh, the Middle East and has been working a lot on foreign policy. Uh, he thinks he doesn't get a lot of attention for it, so he was very glad to have this to kind of promote it. He had hundreds of people there at the White House. You know, this this is uh, historic. If you talk to, you know, experts that have been watching the Middle East, uh, you, you mentioned what the agreements do generally, uh, you know, normalizing the relationships there. It's, you know, talking about opening embassies, establishing other new diplomatic and economic ties, including tourism, technology and energy. So, you know, this is significant. And, uh, you know, the president's talking about how other nations could also take similar steps. We'll say the thing that they didn't talk about was the thing that uh, the president's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, has been working on for years now, which is uh, some kind of agreement between Israel and Palestine. So it just this this agreement really left out Palestine, which is uh, something you can't do in the Middle East. Right. That's that's something if you're talking about peace in the Middle East, as the president talked about, you have to include them. So, uh, you know, while significant, while a significant step, it wasn't the. Uh, end-all, be-all thing he has been talking about for years now. Here is Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu delivering a speech at the White House on Tuesday after signing the agreement. Today, we're filled with such profound gratitude. I am grateful to you, President Trump, for your decisive leadership. You have unequivocally stood by Israel's side. You have boldly confronted the tyrants of Tehran. You've proposed a realistic vision for peace between Israel and the Palestinians. And you have successfully brokered the historic peace that we are signing today. Netanyahu uh, described the accord as a a pivot of history. Uh, Sewell Chan, it comes in exchange for Israel suspending its annexation plans. And as Anita says, you know, Palestinians are not part of this deal. How did you see it? I think it's a I think it's a significant event. Um, it's the first um, Arab-Israeli peace deal since the one that Jordan and Israel signed in 1994. 
Um, that said, um, you know, remains to be seen whether Saudi Arabia would come on board. Um, that's kind of linchpin of the region. Um, and it also, as others have noted, you know, it really, really leaves, you know, the aspirations of the Palestinian people and the status of the occupied Palestinian territories off the table. And I think you could see that resentment bubbling up with the, um, the launching of rockets uh, from Gaza because the Palestinians are very, very upset about this, very upset right. being abandoned on the altar of um, cooperation against uh, Iran. Anita Kumar, at the end of the day, is this really about fortification against Iran uh, for these small countries, UAE and Bahrain? Definitely. It's about that. Uh, uh, I don't think they really talked about it, didn't really mention it publicly. But that's what this alliance is about, um, you know, pushing against Iran. The president did mention, uh, you know, at one point making a deal, a possible deal with Iran. If you'll remember, he got out of the Iran nuclear deal, which was, um, you know, brokered in part by President Obama before him. And so there were, you know, some some, you know, you saw the prime minister Netanyahu kind of look at that, look at him and say, what? Because they don't want that deal. You know, the Israel was very opposed to the United States being in that Iran nuclear deal. He doesn't want President Trump involved in that. But yes, everybody is sort of looking towards Iran. What does this mean? How can there be an alliance against Iran? And a lot of talk that uh, that Oman and, and Sudan could be next uh, here. So we'll continue to watch that. Let's go to the coronavirus now. The head of the United Nations called the coronavirus the world's number one global security threat this week. And that came after the deadliest day in nearly a month right here in the United States, nearly 1,300 deaths just on Tuesday. Um, while that was happening, a top official in the Department of Health and Human Services announced a leave of absence after he was falsely after he falsely accused government scientists of engaging in, quote, sedition. Uh, Lisa Desjardins, Michael Caputo encouraged the president's supporters, among other things, to prepare for an armed insurrection. Uh, talk about um, this, these facts <laughs> and situations surrounding uh, the former head of HHS. Right. Michael Caputo um, is a well-known um, Trump aide. He has a fascinating history himself um, in the past, worked for George H.W. Bush, worked for Oliver North during the Reagan years, also for Boris Yeltsin. Um, he is someone who was seen as a political force at HHS trying to exact the president's agenda, often in conflict uh, with folks who were more um, seasoned veterans of the organization, including scientists. And his comments uh, basically accused the CDC of being an insurrection unit within the government. That is something that, of course, the head of the CDC had to push back at as he did. He said those comments saddened him. He pointed out that the organization is professional um, and dedicated to their work. Caputo has said he's leaving for health reasons. He says he's been leaving weight, losing weight. He wasn't quite sure why, uh, but now he needs to explore an issue that may be lymphatic. Um, but but he was the man who was supposed to be in charge of messaging about the vaccine for this time period before the election. So his departure um, is very significant. Here he is, Michael Caputo, um, Health and Human Services uh, spokesperson, uh, director, sharing a number of conspiracy theories in a Facebook Live event on Sunday. Here he is. The partisan Democrats, the conjugal media, and the scientists, the deep state scientists, want America sick through November. They cannot afford for us to have any good news before November because they're already losing. 
Anita Kumar, uh, emails also surfacing uh, this week showing Caputo actively trying to edit and delay weekly scientific reports published by the CDC. And there are other examples. Uh, It goes to a larger perception, I guess, that that Caputo and others in the administration were trying to block science, maybe even change science for political gain. Your thoughts here? Yeah. And Michael Caputo, who I've known, you know, prior to him being at HHS, uh, doesn't have that background in healthcare and science. He is, as Lisa said, a, a campaign operative. He worked for the president on his uh, campaign in 2016. You know, he's friendly with the with the president. He's a confidant of Roger Stone. So his background uh, is not about health and science. It's about sort of winning. It's about you know the campaign and and the back and forth of that. And he's very in your face and tough. And so exactly what he what he did at HHS was he brought that to HHS. So he didn't uh, talk about the science. He wanted to put things in good terms. He was brought there because the president, uh, you know, in the beginning of the pandemic, uh, his poll numbers fell. He was getting blamed for the response. And he was brought there to put out a better message for the president. Uh, He says he was brought there from the president. This was not someone that the HHS secretary wanted. It was someone that the president wanted there. And he would tell people that he reported directly to the president, not to the secretary. Sewell Chan, even the appearance of meddling here during a pandemic that has killed nearly 200,000 Americans creates distrust of, of these critical agencies, does it not? Uh, It does, Jane, and I think it's very worrisome. It also undercuts Secretary Alex Azar of HHS, who has been one of the figures in the administration trying to sound the alarm early about the seriousness of the pandemic. And I think it speaks to a broader politicization of and erosion of um, uh, trust in public institutions by placing unqualified political appointees into highly sensitive jobs where some degree of expertise or at least fidelity to agency norms uh, should be required. And Lisa, I mean, it just goes to the larger point as well of, you know, the pandemic becoming such a fault line in the culture wars, right? If you agree with the president and the administration, the virus is in the rearview mirror, you're on one side. If you believe it's still, you know, a, a serious public health crisis, you're on the other side. We've got the economy where you stand on masks. I mean, it's all so mm-hmm. politicized now. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about that. And it makes it very tricky for us as journalists that this is so political Um, despite the fact that we know some basic things. I will say that while the president likes to speak as though the virus is or soon will be in the rearview mirror, I don't know any other politicians who have seriously put forth that view um, other other than those who work directly for him. Even at the U.S. Capitol, even the most kind of staunch um, Trump supporter um, who may be opposed to mask wearing, for example, has not been saying that this virus... Um, is behind us. And instead, uh, we have seen in red states, especially, including some states that had great success for many months, like South Dakota, we're right. seeing numbers rise. So I think that everyone, Republicans, Democrats, independents, um, Green Party, libertarians that I speak to realize that this crisis not only is still here, but could in fact still get worse. And and that's, so I think that sometimes, you know, we get criticized a lot. There's a big conversation about both sides-ism um, really, the president is alone in the way he sees this, um, and 
And that, that is difficult because he's the president, but, but, but he's, I don't know any other politicians that see the virus the same way he does. And Anita Kumar, beyond the, the continued drumbeat of a vaccine, is there a broader plan at the White House within the administration as we move into fall and to perhaps a phase two of the virus, as Lisa mentions? You know, the thing that I keep hearing um, from people there is really about the vaccine, as you mentioned, and then a continuation of this opening up of America, even as, you know, we're facing part, you know, phase two and and all that. It's really still how to get the schools open, how to get the businesses open. Uh, That's been the president's focus for for a long time now, for months and months since the spring. Um, And that continues to be his focus. He's talking about that all the time. And, uh, you know, as it relates to jobs in the economy. I want to get this story in before we uh, finish up here today. Um, Top congressional Democrats are calling for a federal investigation after a whistleblower, Don Wooten, claimed that ICE detention centers uh, in Georgia, the one where she worked, denied detainees medical care and performed hysterectomies on women without their consent. Here she describes a conversation with a female detainee on MSNBC on Tuesday. And she said, what is he? Is he the uterus collector? Does he collect uteruses? And I asked her, what does she mean? And she says, everybody that I talked to has had a hysterectomy. And you just don't know what to say. I mean, I don't, I don't have a answer for why that they would come to me and they would say, is he the uterus collector? Lisa Dejarjan, it's such a horrific uh, story. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you know about this? It is. First of all, Congress obviously is asking for investigations into this right away. Um, this woman who was a nurse at this facility um, detailed a long list of very serious concerns. Um, that's at the top of the list. Now, the Project South, and that is part of the project that is helping her forward her complaint, um, has said that they they've de- that she talked to um, five different women at the facility who received hysterectomies um, in basically the late part of last year. Now, ICE itself has responded saying that their data show only two women have been referred for hysterectomies since 2018. I think the situation is that we just don't know the facts and that there are real concerns here. Beyond that, there are also real red flags about this facility telling employees um, not to talk about potential COVID cases, and in fact, not to even test people who were showing very clear signs of the coronavirus. Um, there are questions about the private company that's running these facilities, not just here, but around the country uh, that this raises. Lisa, thank you. Um, in our last couple of minutes here, uh, I'd like to look forward to next week, and I'd like to uh, round robin it a little bit and ask each of our panelists to tell us what's on your radar uh, next week. What should we be watching out for? Sewell Chan, I'll start with you. Well, I think we're looking to see where if the fires, in fact, abate and if the weather does, in fact, get cooler. I've been reflecting on it, and you know, it will get cooler as the winter arises, but of course, the question will be rebuilding and whether or not the wildfires this season are a harbinger of even worse uh, summers and falls to come. And politically, what what's on your radar in Washington? Oh, um, definitely thinking about the lead up to the debates, um, thinking in particular about the question of election integrity. I mean, I'm on calls constantly where um, people are talking about the litigation that might ensue and about the, our role in the media in preparing uh, readers and listeners and viewers that there may not be results on election day itself, on election night itself, that the media should be more skeptical of uh, exit polling, which um, has increasingly proved inaccurate. Mm-hmm. 
that we should not try to, quote unquote, call the election. We don't have a national election commission in the United States. Sorry for the background noise. We um, we you know, it's, it's state administered and the we should not rush to rush to try to produce an outcome when there isn't a clear one yet. And then, of course, all the uncertainty about, around mail in voting. I and mean, that's the drumbeat that I'm hearing. Anita Kumar, about uh, 45 seconds for you. Sure. Um, You know, this is generally next week would be a big week uh, normally at the White House. It's uh, the U.N. General Assembly is meeting Uh, this year. They're not meeting. They've scrapped everything in person and everybody's sort of sending a video message. We had heard the president was going to go in person on Tuesday. He has now said he's not. This is still an important message to the world about where the United States is on foreign policy. And with this president, you never know what he's going to say. And so I'll be sort of looking to see what that message is. Lisa Desjardins, you get the last word. What's on your radar? What are you watching next week? Everything Anita and Sewell said so well. Um, But I would add to that also the down-ballot races. Um, I I think that Democrats are happy with their position in general in the House and Senate, but they don't feel it's secure at this point. They think if Trump has a resurgence, you you can see um, that they could lose uh, their advantage in the Senate. Um, and there are many House races uh, where they're really hoping to make gains. So I'm, I'm paying a lot of attention to that very intense fight right now. It's a big time uh, to, to be in news and to watch it all. We appreciate you being here with us today to walk us through it all. Sewell Chan, editorial page editor for The Los Angeles Times. Sewell, thank you so much. Anita Kumar, White House correspondent and associate editor at Politico. Anita, thank you. Sure, thanks. And Lisa Desjardins, correspondent for the PBS NewsHour. Lisa, many thanks as always. You're welcome. What a pleasure. Thank you. You can continue the conversation, listeners. Get the On Point podcast at our website, onpointradio.org. Follow us on Twitter and find us on Facebook at On Point Radio. We wish you a good weekend. Stay safe. I'm Jane Clayson. This is On Point. On Point.